I am Alan Mosley. I'm the host of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley, which we had our episode 100 live special back in uh, March of this year. So it was right at the onset of all of the uh, Medela virus stuff going on. And we actually had a live event. We had uh, anarchists and libertarians from all around the country, all different corners of the 48 that uh, that came in for the show and uh, happy to report that, to my knowledge, nobody got sick. But it, it would be it would be our luck that there's only 17 libertarians and we killed half of them <laughs> in our show. Um, I'm, I'm originally from Tennessee, originally from Columbia, which is the mule capital of the world and the home of James K. Polk. So, you know, we have our status credentials right there as well. Yeah. Uh, I my uh, degrees are in history, which means useless. Um, and that's why I host a podcast, which we talk about politics, economics, history, all that good stuff. But we've we've started to incorporate a lot more pop culture, sports, different things, because frankly, if I if I spend the rest of my life talking about um, everything wrong with the world, I'm uh, my the rest of my life is only going to last a few more. Yeah, years. it's not going to be that long of a life. I'm yeah. definitely um, I'm right there with you right now. I got to find some good just just a little bit of good out there. Sports used to be the way I got out, and now this yeah. year, I just, you know, this is the first year I ever decided I'm just not going to watch anything, because I, I I don't know if that's really going to be a release from any politics, but... Um, yeah. So, how, how did you grow up with the beliefs that you have right now? Did you transition into the beliefs you have right now? So, I, I grew up pretty much with the beliefs I have right now. I'm, I tell people I'm an anarchist with no adjectives. Um, I have pretty much had the worldview that I have my whole life. So imagine how scary I was in kindergarten. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I like to tell people, you know, I, I'm just old enough and I have a lot of older family members. Um, I was the youngest out of my family and my father was the youngest out of eight. So because of that kind of generational gaps, I have a lot of older family members. And because of that, you know, I remember being a little kid and going to family reunions and having family members that they were only a couple of generations removed from people who died in the civil war. Right. And um, a lot of that old South don't talk to the census man, shoot the tax guy. If he comes too far up the farm road, that sort of thing. And so that natural distrust, that, that default state of being uh, anti-government, anti-state, you know, pro-individualism was something that I learned at a really early age. And and I may not have known the terminology at the time, but the foundation for that was already there. And so I have kind of taken that into adult life. It's like, well, when you talk to other people, how do you describe it? As I tell them, if I could only accomplish one thing, it would just be to get people's default position to be a skeptic of government interaction and the state um, I'm not I'm not trying to, t you know, make them all go, you know, be the Unabomber and live out in the middle of nowhere by themselves and not have any utilities. <laughs> just I, I just them. want them to be just want them to be skeptical. That's all. That's I, I think lately there's a lot more people skeptical than there were before. Luckily, yeah. um, and I mean, that's the positive side of the the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and uh, maybe the the police officer shootings and things like that. I think you have some people realizing like maybe government's not our answer. Maybe there's a better way. Oh, hopefully, um, you know, you see some people on other sides that just want more government as well, both on the right and the left, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that you have a degree in history. So did that kind of solidify uh, your, your beliefs that you grew up with um, the more you learned about history? Or were there any times, you know, during that, that you thought maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong? 
Um, I wouldn't say that there was times that I, I really felt my beliefs were challenged. If if anything, having an understanding of history allows one to kind of kind of see where changes were made, see where narratives shifted, kind of see the focal points of, well, the general population thought X at, at, at Y time, but then you can see where narratives shift. Um, you know, I've on the one hand, I'm I'm not a big constitution guy. I mean, I'm an anarchist. I'm not a big constitution guy. I'm not a big, uh, you know, worship the founding fathers guy. However, you can also see when when you look at like our, our nation's founding and and around the time of the ratification, um, you you can see ideological divides. Then I feel like a lot of people have this attitude of, well, it's just the founding generation or the ratifiers, and they're all just this the static group. And that's absolutely not true. You had ideological divides then just like you do now. But I, but I think that's, you know, there's that kind of accelerationism, right? Is that when, when certain, when certain ideological camps tend to control the narrative, then, then it accelerates significantly from that point. So I, I will happily report that, you know, when I was in school, I didn't I didn't run afoul of a lot of your your stereotypical, you know, ideological dragons in school that were trying to force students to read one thing and think one way. I didn't really have that experience. Um, however, I will say the the default norm was um, everything that has happened in U.S. history, be it good or evil, has led us to where we are. So we, we generally should be accepting of the state. We should generally be accepting of government because this is the quote unquote will of the people. That would probably be the one thing that I dispute the most from just a histor- historical narrative. A lot of people would say, well, where we are is a reflection of the people. And I would say I- anyone who understands the way the system works and how the system is designed to protect itself uh, as, as number one in a distant number two is to provide any type of service to the people. Uh, I, I don't think anyone can say with a straight face that, that the America we live in is truly a reflection of the will. Do you think the well, local yeah, governments yeah. do a good job reflecting what they're what the people local inside of their districts do? Um, I think local governments do a better job, but in some sense, if you're an anti, if you're a hashtag democracy as cancer guy like I am, then then local governments being a better reflection can be a bad thing because if if people are more likely to have their will expressed at a local level, um, but fifty one percent of the people in a in a community have some really onerous views, then that can actually end up backfiring with them. So I, on the one hand, it's great that you can vote with your feet and that finding different localities with uh, different policies is a good thing. Um, however, there's, there's obviously the danger of, of course, you know, talking from here in Nashville, Nashville's not the city it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I have, I'm terrified of what kind of city Nashville is going to be 10 or 20 years from now. It seems like they forgot what led to them growing so fast and attracting so many people. And they got to that point where uh, all that, all the tourism, all the money, all the people are rolling in. Now let's flip on that money switch and tax the hell Mm -hmm. out of them. Once they're here, they're not, you know, we came from Illinois originally and moved here. Mm -hmm. uh, What was it, Charlie? 10, 10 years ago, I guess. Yeah, a little over 10 years now. About 11 years. Middle of the cornfields. Yeah, yeah. We came right from the cornfields in Illinois and uh, came down here fleeing taxation. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what do you... What do you know? Our property taxes went up 34%. Uh, just a yeah, I, was, ago, so. I was about to say, you were fleeing taxation, but taxation <laughs> found you, didn't it? It did. It always <laughs> finds you some kind of way. 
Uh, I like the point that you made about local governments. We say a lot, local governments can still be tyrannical. Just because it happened on a local level does not mean mm-hmm. that it's good. It, that that might be a more so that's a the, I think you hit it hit the nail you hit the nail on the hammer right there as my granddaddy used to tell me um, that that the local governments can still be very tyrannical we can see that everywhere right now it, it, your local governments uh, can still take away all all of your liberties you you brought up several good points there that I, that I wanted to mention you know the the founders were actually in the minority. You know, it was only like 17% of the American population that actually agreed with separation from, from Great Britain. So, and you probably know that better than I do. I don't know if exactly. I heard it was the less than that. But yeah, maybe 14%, something mm-hmm. like that. I can't remember. Um, but, but I find it interesting how they were still able to, um, you know, have the movement that they did and, and establish, um, you know, what, in my view, still the greatest country that has existed. It, it definitely has provided the most freedom and the most opportunity uh, so far that we know of um, technically in history um, and produced the most wealth. Uh, however, one could argue that it could even be better uh, if there were no government. I'm not fully on the anarchist side yet, but I feel like every day I've become closer and closer <laughs> to, to it. Um, tell me about like, you, know, you said you grew up with the same beliefs. Are there any specific uh, stories, maybe something funny or something really powerful that happened to you when you were a kid or maybe in your early teens, um, you know, to, to do with your views at all? Any specific stories? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's a specific story that I would really say was like formulating to my views because I, I always I always kind of had the attitudes of, you know, I'm a big, a big believer in fairness and justice. And, and I don't consider fairness and justice to be what the majority of people think. I think that those are are static points. You know, I was you know, I'm a big Captain America guy that says plant yourself next to the the like a like a rock next to freedom and and say no you move you know and um you know i i remember being you know as i was getting into my late teens and early 20s and in and, and moving kind of transitioning into that adult world um actually the first time i was in school i dropped out of school and opened a printing business and that was my first experience uh, you want to talk about, we were talking about taxation earlier. Hmm. That was my first experience of working for myself, filing all my own taxes and paperwork. Um, and of course I was an idiot, so I wasn't doing things uh, bi-monthly or quarterly. I was just paying one lump sum check at, at tax time and seeing these thousands of dollars check that I was having to write. And, and, and what's more, as I was thinking, man, if, granted, Tennessee is a, a ways under the, the the median average for the nation in terms of income. But if you're looking at the national poverty line, I'm like, I'm not that far away from the national poverty line, but I'm having to write a several, a several thousand dollar check in taxes every year. How can this possibly be right? How can I be someone that the elites would consider to be not, I mean, lower middle class to upper poverty, but I'm having to pay thousands of dollars in taxes. And the reason I'm having to is because I'm trying to run my own business. Like let's call a spade a spade. I'm doing that because I'm trying to, I'm trying to do something for myself. And so that was kind of that moment where, you know, you, you see the talking heads on TV, particularly, maybe particularly the conservative ones, not that they're any better. And you see them talking about protecting the small business and taxes. And when you're that average American who the tax burden is not significant for you or you work for another company and they're taking the taxes out of your paycheck. You don't really like you hear the bluster, but you don't really feel it. 
And then you go and open your own business and it smacks you in in the face and you realize, oh, this is what they've been talking about. So the small business owner out there who maybe employs a handful of people at most and they're trying to grow a new business. I didn't inherit a family business that was 50 years old. I'm trying to open a new business. And by the way, this was back in like 08, like right around the time of the financial crash and the housing bubble. So that's that's when I opened my business, when all of the contractors that I did printing for were coming into me saying, oh, we're, we're going bankrupt. Times are terrible. I was like, well, I, I don't know what good times look like because this is the this is when I opened my business. So this is just normal to me. Um, but that was probably the most eye opening moment for it's something I already knew, but it became much more real because I really felt it in my business. I felt it in my wallet and thinking, good gosh, I got to start figuring out ways to cheat, right? I got to start <laughs> figuring out the ways that all the elites get out of paying their stuff because it's ridiculous that a guy who can barely afford a house in Columbia, Bodunk, Tennessee has to pay that much. How different yeah. do you think it would be in the country if everyone had to pay their taxes like that? Like they all had to write a check? Oh, it, it would be significant. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's no way that the, the system as it exists is ever going to make a couple of changes as, as I'm about to describe, but two, two changes that would instantly change hearts and minds would be a, there's no automatic uh, withdrawals. You have to pay your taxes yourself. You have to file all the paperwork. You have to write the check. Um, and two, imagine a system where uh, the, the annual congressional budget that's something that whether, whether they vote on it or not, that's borderline irrelevant because it, and in the middle of April, that budget gets sent to you as a survey and you check which things you want your tax money to go to and which things you don't. And then that kind of retroactively affects their budgeting. It's, I, I bet you would be surprised to find that a lot of people would be happy to put a check mark next to every single box on the budget if they don't have to pay for it. But as soon as they have to pay for it, I bet those checks all start to go away. So how would you do that? Would you would it be like a a rank order system, like what gets the most uh, votes in the budget or whatever that would get a percentage of that budget or literally each person's money specifically went towards that thing? Well, I mean, if you're a taxation is theft guy like me, then you would Mm -hmm. say that, well, if I don't check anything, then I just don't pay taxes and I keep mine. But, you know, for all those people out there that want to talk about social contracts and and how it's it's for the good of society, um, they're more than welcome to put a checkbox next to every single thing and 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 dole out their money as they see fit. I just think I I think the important thing to take away is, is that. Um, you know, people like to cynically point out that there's nothing that stops you from donating to the treasury. You know, if you're if you're Bill Gates and you want to pay an extra fifty million dollars this year to the treasury because you'd like to fund whatever pet project, you're welcome to do that. No one does that, by the way, but you're more than welcome to do that. So the the the, the fact that the conversation is always people trying to get out of their quote unquote dues versus people voluntarily paying in should go a long way in demonstrating how people really feel about government spending and taxes, as opposed to how they want society to think they feel. I'll pay the taxes that I owe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's um, as, as Brian Kaplan would put it, it's, it's social desirability bias, right? Is that everyone wants to have these things and, and their want of having them outweighs 
the the logical consistency of being a part of the system. I mean, it, like, for example, put education into that is that a lot of people have negative feelings about the public education system, but yet it gets funded and funding and funded and funded. So how is it that people keep on voting for politicians that are pro public education, even though people hate public education? And the answer is social desirability bias. They they want there to be a robust system, but they also deep down know that it's garbage. And, and, and social desirability bias can go a long way into explaining a lot of uh, societal ills, especially when it comes to government. It's that people people want government to work. It doesn't work, but they want it to. Well, and from, you know, for the longest time now, I think there's a fear associated with that as well, which is, well, if we don't have that, what are we going to have? And mm-hmm. then people are like, oh, well, we don't have any solutions. The government's always been there for us. Uh, even if it is crappy, well, at least we have something, right? Yeah. So I think there's a deep-seated fear there as well. I think a lot of people are are stuck in kind of the chicken before the egg debate there a little bit of, well, if we don't have government, we wouldn't have anything. But on the other hand, whenever any entity comes along that tries to make something, government destroys it. Government doesn't like competition. So if we if 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 I could snap my fingers and most government programs disappeared overnight, yes, there would be an enormous shock to society. But that's also government's fault because government tends to shut out competition, particularly in the areas in which it has monopoly control. So, you know, it's, you know, what, how great it is for the, the statist uh, argument to say, well, you know, you can't live without us and we'll make sure you can't. How do we go about, uh, you know, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a leap of faith kind of in trying to convince someone that if the government doesn't provide it, that the free market's going to step in. And you can say, mm-hmm. well, no one's doing it right now. And like what you were just saying, why would they try to do it right now? They they can't they can't compete. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they legally can't even compete with what yes. the government's doing. So um, how would you convince someone or explain to someone that those things would pop up, maybe not overnight, but in mm-hmm. the time it takes people to form a corporation and get something going, how do you tell them mm-hmm. that it's going to it's gonna be there? Well, you know, again, like if we were just going to take education as an example, you know, there's there's people like Corey DeAngelis over at the Reason Foundation do, do a lot of work on um, uh, school, you know, pup, school choice and education funding. And he would be the because I don't think that Corey, I could be wrong, but I don't think Corey's a hardcore anarchist. I think what he would say is, is that, you know, how, how about we how about we try this middle ground of I'm not going to call for a single cut of a penny in education spending. However, I want the dollars that that correspond to each individual child to follow the family so the family can then decide I, I spend that money on one public school or a different public school or I spend it on a private school or I just take my money home and I use that money to, to fund my my home school or my co-op or my learning pod or whatever. And again, what's amazing is just how much vicious, just just vile pushback there is from the public education establishment, from teachers unions, from some politicians against an idea like that. So like, look, we're not we're not even calling for a cut in spending, although someone like Alan Mosley would say cut the spending to zero because mm-hmm. and just let people keep their money. Corey would say, well, we'll keep on taxing and spending and printing and we'll keep the education budget what it is. We'll just allow people more autonomy to choose parents to choose how that funding is used for their for the students in their home. And then you look at the unbelievable 
unbelievable pushback against ideas of school choice. And and so, again, it kind of goes to show you that it's not that there's no ideas. It's that the establishment is not interested in ideas. I I can't stress enough. I I forget what the actual um, uh, term for this is, but it's just to understand that the the establishment, any organization's number one goal is its own survival. Its secondary mm-hmm. goal is whatever it purports to do. So the education system's distant number two objective is to educate children. Its number one objective is to fund itself. What would you say to those who were like, well, that, you know, that hurts poor people in Mississippi who, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're barely making ends meet and they, you know, they wouldn't even with the with the funding, they wouldn't be able to send their kid to a private school. So they're still stuck with the same crappy public school and it doesn't actually change anything like what would you say to to that argument? Well, when you when you look at the average cost of private schools, but especially more so if you look at the cost of hiring, hiring private tutors, going a homeschool route, that sort of thing. And granted, I understand that that's not that's not the avenue for everyone. I understand that there's people out there that that's not the best option, even if they had the money. But I mean, you, you look at you look at some of the average education spending. I mean, even in some of the poorer states, you know, six, eight, nine thousand dollars per pupil per year. Um, I think the, the national average is closer to something like twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand. You look at the kind of money that gets spent per pupil in the United States on education, but a federal, state and local level. Um, yeah, if if. If people were given the choice, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about choice, right? And we say, give them the choice. I think you would have a massive amount of parents, and even particularly in poor communities, because poor the the poor and, and disadvantaged tend to have the least choices of all, and their only choice is to acquiesce to a public option. Look, you you have you have rich families paying out of pocket to educate their children privately right now. We want to give that option to. Uh, poor and disadvantaged families. Right now, they have no option. And their options aren't even great. In it. The public school, the one option that they do have, if you're in a poor area, you're probably at a pretty terrible public school as well. You're probably not even getting proper schooling. That doesn't go for every school, but my mom did teach in a very poor area, and their literacy rates were just god-awful. I'm like, what mm-hmm. education are you even getting right now? What, what, are, you, what are you worried about losing? A daycare? Like we can, you know, the, maybe it would be better if people were actually having to compete for that money. And do you think that the prices could even come down for private education if the market were opened up for it in the first place? There could be potentially artificially high prices right now anyway. Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I tend not to talk too much about private schools because at the end of the day, for a private school to be established, it still has to be playing by the rules that the state lays out. So it's it's really just public school light. Whereas a lot of your your co-ops, your homeschools, private tutors, that sort of thing, that is much more outside the purview. I mean, obviously, it's still regulated, but not quite as much as an actual like established you know, foundational school is. But I mean, as you kind of touched on a little bit right there, look, private or public schools are terrible. You know, we're sitting here talking about school choice between a private option or a public option or just an individual homeschooling option. Um, I, you know, I, I keep in mind, I'm saying I'm just trying to meet people halfway when I say let's give them options. I would rather just abolish the Department of Education and get rid of public schools entirely. I'm being I'm being the generous anarchist <laughs> here by saying we'll let you keep the public schools, but allow people the opportunity to take their dollars elsewhere. 
And then the market would take care of itself. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, we can't, you know, the naysayer is going to say, well, you know, Charlie just is just thinking up, you know, fairy magic to say the market will just take care of itself. But again, as, as we kind of stressed before, not only do we genuinely believe the market would take care of itself, but that government does such a good job of stamping out competition. You know, I mean, how long, you know, public schools have been around for, uh, you know, a couple, a couple centuries, you know, let's, let's, let's spend just 20 or 30 years without the government stamping out education uh, initiatives. And then we'll see how the market responds. So you're, you're an anarchist, but you're willing to compromise and how important do you think that is that people say on our side of that political spectrum are willing to accept some compromises to get back to where we want to be? Well, the biggest thing is, is that there's a difference between me being willing to compromise versus what I think would be a net benefit for the rest of the country. So, look, I'm not sending my kids to private uh, to, to uh, public schools. I have no interest in being a part of that system at all. If I could just have my money back and then just keep it in my bank account and not fund education at all, I would 100 percent do that. However, I also understand that, A, that's just not realistic unless there's a massive revolution on all fronts in this country. Um, and B, um, I would, I, I feel like you, you have to at least move the needle. And this is a, especially during the whole pandemic crisis and everything, this is, this is a, there's an interesting silver lining here that yes, people are starting to kind of come around to this concept of, well, you know what, maybe the powers that be don't always make the best decisions. Um, maybe some of them don't genuinely have our best interests at heart. And as if people have stayed home and had to take care of themselves more as the, as the schools have refused to reopen. And as they've, as they've had their kid parked in front of a laptop and seen how terrible their education is remotely um, or just, you know, these pandemic pods, uh, the groups of parents getting together, hiring a tutor and doing it themselves as more and more people have had positive experiences, you know, in in spite of the challenges that has led more and more people um, to look at it, look at individual options. I mean, uh, school enrollment enrollment, some of the biggest biggest districts around the country are down, you know, one, two, three percent, whereas, you know, homeschool enrollment paperwork that's sent to school districts for homeschooling options. I think nationwide is up like 17 or 20 percent. So, I mean, that's that's music to my ears. Uh, You know, again, I don't is the educational establishment going to crumble before our eyes because of this? No, it's not because establishments don't tend to crumble that easily. However, has the needle at least moved in a more individualist direction? Yes, in education and in other ways. So, you know, I'm generally a pessimistic person, you guys. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm I'm really trying hard to think of a handful of things where I can say, well, you know, at least these people are are moving in the right direction. All you know, I, I'm not I'm not a politically active person. I don't think I don't think you can spend yourself rich and I don't think you can vote yourself free. But at least people are doing more things for themselves and not asking permission. So like in this day and age of such a political divide, you know, I, I think in large part, a lot of people are just kind of fed up with the establishment, with the system, so to speak, as, as uh, you know, we all are, what, what do you think leads people to, you know, vote someone like Trump or, or Biden or something like that, you know, essentially more establishment, although Trump ran as a, you know, non-establishment, mm-hmm. a guy who was going to drain the swamp. And I think that's largely why he won. Uh, Cause he was kind of an outsider, although t- really he was an insider, but, but mm-hmm. what do you think leads people to, uh, to be attracted to something like that versus, 
um, you know, something some like the Libertarian Party or people who advocate for more freedom and more individualism? What what makes it so uh, tough that people navigate that direction? Mm-hmm. Um, essentially more authoritarian, I would say, than than more towards freedom. What is it uh, about that that is so attractive? Well, I, I think that that's that's kind of a couple of different questions. There's the duopoly angle, and then there's the the third party LP angle. And I think when it comes to the duopoly angle, um, and and I see this a lot amongst the libertarian community, is that at the end of the day, there's a you know I, I don't vote, I I never vote, and I never will. But I know that there's a lot of people that feel like, well, that just means I'm not going to have any say at all. And by and large, they're voting defensively. I mean, let's, you know, call it what it is there. Even it's unfortunate that I see any people with the word libertarian in their mouths. I, I want to smack them when they say that. And then they turn around and say they're voting for Trump or Biden. Um, but they're doing it because they're voting defensively. They they they're just they're taking the rational view that one of these guys is going to be the next president, no matter what. An R or a D will win every election. And. And I'm going to pick the one that is is the the least bad of the two, or maybe maybe there's a little bit of net good on a, a couple of pet projects of mine or whatever. It's not that I don't get that; I get it. Um, it's just that, but how is that working out, right? Like that's you know it's that that's that's not new. You know these these the the woke libertarian types who kind of come around to the idea of well. You know, I hate Trump, but Biden's even worse. So I'm going to vote Trump. I'm like, how does that make you any different than any just establishment conservative who would say, well, I'm I don't like Trump, but I'm not going to vote Democrat like that. You're exactly your, your logic's really not that far off from the same logic. Um, so in and furthermore, I mean, let's be honest, most people, unless you live in a swing state, it's all moot. Like it, it's all if you unless you live in a sweet state, it's all moot. So you're I don't vote at all. I don't I try my best not to hold it against people for voting, you know, voting LP. I see people voting Joe Jorgensen. And while I would never vote for Joe Jorgensen because I don't vote, um, at least you're not voting for a duopoly candidate. But, man, there's a whole lot of people out there, even amongst our liberty community. So a liberty movement, so to speak, that they're going to vote for one of the major party candidates unironically. Um, because they think that is the least bad for them. And the only thing I can say to them is, is that while I get it, I hope you have an exit plan because you know that that's not a fix. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's putting a bandaid on, on a decapitation. You know, you know (laughs) that that's not going to, that's not going to get you anywhere. So all I can say is, is I get what you're doing. I hope you have a better plan in the future. That's a hell of a mandate, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, it, you know, it's well. I was just going to say really quick. It's um, our our most recent episode of "It's Too Late" that was last night. Um, I was I was kind of going hard a little bit on some of the folks from Reason Magazine because they their their staffers do a survey every year where they say who they're going to vote for this year and if they could change one vote in the past, who would it be? And I mean, half of them are voting for Biden. Really? Half, half of them are voting for Biden because as one of them put it, I'm, and this is a direct quote, they feel that the number one most important libertarian issue of our time is to get Donald Trump out of office. And I thought, wait a minute, like, look, I want Donald Trump out of office, too, because I want the office to be deleted. But <laughs> you mean to tell me that between being unabashedly anti-war um, in the Fed, uh, g- getting rid of the Department of Education, 
you know, getting rid of Social Security, Medicare, uh, taxation is theft, all of the different buzz things that anarchists slash libertarians believe in. All of those things are second to you to getting rid of Donald J. Trump and, and voting for Joe Biden. I'm sorry. Get that word out of your mouth. You're not a libertarian. I'm going to have to look that up. I have not heard that, but that is infuriating coming from a from someone from a magazine like Reason because they have uh, so many great articles all, all the time. Uh, that is that is crazy to hear out of out of something like 24 different writers, reporters, editors, content people that were surveyed. I think four or five are I don't vote and I never will. And and I gave credit where credit is due. Good on them. Those are like the anarchist types in that organization. Um, of the remainder, about half are voting Joe Jorgensen, which, again, that's not my bag, but I don't hold it against him. Um, however, a handful of the Joe voters did say if they thought their state was in doubt, they would vote Biden. Yeah, the, it, the, Joe is their protest vote. <laughs> and if there's a chance that Biden won't win, they'll vote Biden. And then of the other half, um, they're just voting Biden straight up. That is their choice. One out of the 24 is voting Trump. Now, wow, that's so interesting. Do I count yeah. as a, as, you know, just someone who's totally off in your view, because I've only voted in two elections. In 2012, I wrote in Ron Paul. And in mm-hmm. 2016, I wrote in Rand Paul because I really wanted him to be the... But I didn't vote for anyone that was on the ballot. Does that count as not voting? <laughs> I mean, I think if you go if you go and vote and you vote for Mickey Mouse, that counts as not voting. Or okay. you could just vote for yourself. I mean, let's face it. If we're just picking dictators, it might as well be me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. If I'm going to vote for who I think should be president, I'll go ahead and write myself in. Yeah, which by the way, you you said you wrote in Rand because that was that was your kind of protest vote slash you thought that that was the best person for the job. Ironically, of that same survey, the second question was if you could change one vote, what would it be? So some of them actually, I think there was one in particular that actually wrote that they had voted Rand Paul, and if they mm-hmm. could change it, they would change that. Now keep in mind, this is a group of people that that they openly admit had voted for Hillary Clinton, had voted for Barack Obama, had voted for George W. Bush. Um, a down the line establishment candidates. But that person who voted for Rand Paul said they wish they could change it because they recoil at the thought of Rand Paul now. That's probably so just, just, just keep Rand's... in mind as a, as a group, they're voting for Joe Biden, but they recoil at the idea of Rand Paul. Now, look, I'm not a Rand Paul fan. I'm just simply saying that if you're going to talk about establishment, you know, mainstream candidates, if you rank Joe Biden above Rand Paul, then you're just demonstrating to me why I'm against democracy in the system. I hate to, I hate that I have to say that about people in our, quote, own community, but Man alive, you guys suck. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. That it's all interesting to me because I would say the majority of Americans are actually with you. They don't vote. I mean, for, for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. Either they don't care um, or something hasn't affected them greatly enough and they're just kind of meandering along life and everything's fine. And they have mm-hmm. enough problems besides voting. And then there's a lot of people who don't vote because they're just literally fed up and they don't think it's going to matter anyway. Um, and so I, I find that interesting. I was just... I was curious what of the people who do actually vote, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what attracts them, um, I guess, to the authoritarian, I mean, just human nature or <laughs> is there a specific marketing tactic that, okay, uh, obviously so, there, obviously there is some, um, you know, alienation mm-hmm. uh, from the, from the two party system that obviously doesn't allow anybody in the debates or, or surveys or anything like that. Sure. So, 
So something that I've said on the show many times that I've taken a lot of heat for is that I genuinely don't think that the majority of people have any principles to speak of whatsoever. And, and I always say, I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of people out there that if you handed them a, a, just a public policy survey, just a hundred questions on just everything under the sun from farm subsidies to foreign policy, uh, the Iran nuke deal to public education, everything in between, um, they would have to carefully go through that survey and think about every answer. And a, a, a normie might say, well, that, that's good, right? That means they're having to put a lot of thought into each position. And I would say, no, what that tells me is, is they have no underlying base of principles whatsoever that guides them on their decisions. They're literally deciding one issue at a time what makes them feel the best. That is exactly what we have in government, and that's exactly what I can't stand, and I can't stand that amongst voters as well. Um, so, you, you know, you had kind of pointed out the, well, look at all the people that don't vote that are not engaged in the system. If there's one, one, of, my, one of my pet peeves that a lot of the capital L libertarian people do is that they point that out. They look at and say, look at all the people that are not engaged. In reality, most people don't vote for Donald Trump. Most people don't vote for Joe Biden. Most people don't vote for one or the other. But that shouldn't lead you to believe that that means all of those people are LP votes in, in the waiting in the wings. I, 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 there's no reason to believe that that subsect of potential voters would vote any quote unquote better than, than the current politically engaged voters do now. I think the overwhelming majority, when I say overwhelming majority, I mean above 90%. Even if I was, even if I was going to say that we're going to try democracy, which I'm against democracy, but even if we were going to try it, over 90% of people are not qualified to vote. Because, I mean, let's you look, I, I, the example I give is, is let's not even talk about the general public. Let's talk about the House of Representatives. Now, you, you, of course, we all think that they're monsters and they are. But but compared to the average citizenry, these are generally the wealthier, generally the more educated subsect of the population. I, they're all monsters and lizard people, but <laughs> I can concede they generally have degrees or went to law school or whatever. There's no way that any member of the House of Representatives, even even someone's favorite rep, could possibly know all there is to know about agriculture, energy, uh, climate change, um, the Constitution, uh, foreign policy, economics. It's, it's, it's just it's just not true. Um, I, it's something that I cite a lot. Brian Kaplan wrote this amazing book called The Case Against Education. And in that he has some really eye opening statistics where he where basically to boil it down, it's that the average person is is unbelievably stupid. Hmm. I don't I don't mean to say that as in we're elitists and they're dumb. What I mean to say is, is that most people are only experts in one or two topics and in inside their fields of expertise, they know a lot. Outside of their field of expertise, not only do they not know a lot, they don't even know a kindergarten level of knowledge outside of their area of expertise. So since it's just human nature that it's it's borderline impossible to be an to be an expert in more than one or two fields, there's no way that a representative can possibly be voting on things that affect the nation that are in 20 or 30 different fields of, of schools of thought. And that certainly means that the average citizen can't possibly be voting on representatives that then turn around and vote on things in 20 to 30 different schools of thought. I That's always, why they have all these subcommittees. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I go into that when they talk about, uh, you know, lowering the voting age and, uh, and, you know, I don't know where I would specifically, but, you know, you're talking about voting for people 
who you're making the point, obviously, are not experts in these fields, but even voting in those people who are going to do things that are going to affect the entire country, the entire economy, healthcare, mm-hmm. all of these things, agriculture, all that. And and you're telling me that 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 a kid, I will look back at myself when I was 16. Did I mm-hmm. did I have any right to be picking someone that was going to be controlling the the world's economy <laughs> at that time? Yes. How would that um, possibly be possibly be an actual informed vote that was made you know in an educative way w- whatsoever? It's impossible. You're in a, you're nothing, in high school. <laughs> and nothing's more clear than the, than the recent lockdowns, considering mm-hmm. uh, you know all we took into consideration were the medical experts and had. You know, with the with the recent WHO article coming out saying, look, lockdowns are creating more poverty and more people might actually die from that than are going to die from the virus. And so there was no consideration for experts in other fields to, to make an informed decision. We just we just decided shut down the economy. Well, and, and also going back to that last point uh, that you had brought up, Charlie, is that, you know, there's the H.L. Mencken quote that that, you know, people people get what they deserve and they get it good and hard <laughs> is that mo- the over the, this it's, it's another one of my pet peeves about the, the LP people is that they, they like to say, Oh, everyone's a libertarian. They just don't know it yet. If I could talk to them about libertarianism, they would totally be, no, they would not get, Oh my God, get over yourself. The overwhelming majority are authoritarian supporting people. It's so that the question was, well, how, how is it that people can vote Trump? How is it that people can vote Biden? The reality of it is, is that we're the odd ones here. Like it's, it's so important to get out of your, your echo chamber sometimes. Like it's the only reason I go on social media at all. Uh, I used to make the joke. Like if you, if you, if you ever think for a second, that everyone's a, a closet libertarian waiting to come out, just go to your local Walmart, talk to some folks. You'll realize really quick. That's not true. <laughs> uh, is that, that, that the majority of people genuinely support a, a authoritarian figure who is going to institute their worldview at the expense of the people who don't support their worldview. That's the overwhelming consensus on, on either side of the aisle. They just want, they just want theirs. Um, you know, there's that phrase. I know Michael Malice has said it a lot that conservatism is just progressivism driving the speed limit. You know, <laughs> in, in, in my mind, you know, so Republicans and Democrats rarely disagree. They might disagree on, the extent to which a particular dollar amount on a spending bill, but there's no debate on the bill. It's just the, the details. There's, there's, there's no debate on anything, but the minute details. Um, and, and that, that doubles. So for the, the general population uh, it's so while I, I, I don't mean to come off as, as doom and gloom, I do want people to remember that if you're, if you're a die in the wool, little L libertarian anarchist type, you're you're in the very small minority. I, I sometimes see charts and graphs that people will say, well, you know, when when surveyed, 20 percent of people say that they lean libertarian. And I'm like, OK, but a that's because they have no idea what they're talking about. And B, they might lean that way on a survey. Let's see how they vote. Uh, I think if you really nail it down to the people that are willing to put their money where their mouth is, the the libertarian population is is well under one percent. I I would agree with that. <clears throat> I think that it's you know, the last election cycle was. I I think, I I think the Libertarian Party is kind of fooling itself, thinking that that somehow we've got some type of a growing Libertarian movement. I don't think that mm-hmm. that's actually uh, true at all. I think we had two god awful candidates on the ballot, and people who thought that they needed to go vote hit a protest vote. And I think it's I I I've been really uh 
frustrated anytime any of them will post saying, oh, look how many votes we got last election cycle. We're we're going up. And I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah. someone actually puts a, a, someone actually puts someone who isn't completely detestable to the bulk of the people in the country. You're not going to get all those votes again. So mm-hmm. being someone who uh, who is uh, I'm going to go back to the anarchist thing again, because this is something I want someone who's listening, who has completely opposite views to uh, to understand that that doesn't mean that you're some type of a monster who doesn't care about anyone else except for yourself. Now, we might be selfish. I actually embrace selfishness. I think mm-hmm. that it's a good thing. Um, I'm on the, the Ayn Rand version of selfishness. Um, mm-hmm. But how would you say that to someone where, uh, yeah, I do, I, I do think that this is the best way to go, and it doesn't mean that I personally don't care about the mm-hmm. well-being of other people? Well, it just reminds me there's that uh, if you've ever watched some of the old videos of Milton Friedman, which granted he was he was not an anarchist, mm. um, but, you know, he has all those great talks at college campuses. And he had those couple of appearances on Donahue back in the day uh, showing my age now. <laughs> oh, I've, and, I've, uh, I've watched all of those so many times. Yeah. They're some of my favorite and videos. To watch. He he has that part where Donahue, which Donahue was actually a good host, and he's mm-hmm. he's doing that devil's advocate where he says, but when you look at you you look at the 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 difference between the have and the have nots and the greed, like that's what they would, you know, our naysayers would say we're the stooges that are propping up the monopolistic corporations and and we're just in the bag for all these these greedy uh, corporatists. Um, and Milton Friedman had this great response, which is, um, so so. You know, what is greed? Who's greedy? Because because, of course, none of us are greedy. It's always the other guy that's greedy. And he, and he follows that up with, can you can can you think of a society that doesn't run on greed? Does China not run on greed? Does Russia not run on greed? And he says, excuse me, if you'll pardon me. <laughs> uh, do you do you think that presidential uh, nominees pick their candidates based on their virtue or based on their political clout? Mm-hmm. I think these people take an enormous amount for granted, and it's so easy to paint the other people as as the greedy and the uncaring. But then when you when you tell them, OK, but I don't I don't want to know which because people like to grade themselves based on their intentions and not their results. So I don't I don't want to know the intentions of your favorite political candidate of choice. I don't want to know the intentions of the House of Representatives or Senate, although I think their intentions aren't particularly good either. But I don't want to know their intentions. I want to know the results. No one with a straight face can sit here and tell me that the the state is preferable to the unknowns of anarchy, not based on what the intentions of the states are, but in, in terms of their results. You missed the the last part there where he says, just where are you going to find these angels to organize? This yes. <laughs> where are you going to find thing. these angels? To, yes, yeah. exactly. It's you are that, the it's, perfect people that are going to run society. Well, and you know, and I know that there's a Supreme court uh, nomination going on around it right now for Amy Coney Barrett. And I, I already did an episode about her that, that was titled, I'm already against your next political Messiah <laughs> is that, how how many elections can be the most important one? How many nominations do we have to rush through because we can't let this opportunity pass? And then and then how many you know, how many times do you have to have a fresh, new, nom- polished nominee that you think is going to be your political messiah that you find out two months later, three months later, six months later is exactly like the rest of the establishment before you'll just opt out? My my uh, positive view I have on her nomination <clears throat> and her confirmation more than likely is uh 
a, a, a little bit different, but I think that the left will stop uh, will stop listening to anything that the Supreme Court rules on that they don't agree with. And I actually see that being a very positive thing for states' rights, even though I might not agree on all the issues. I see a time when we're going to go to a conservative majority, which is a stupid thing to have to say about a court, but where we're going to go to a conservative majority, there's going to be rulings that a lot of the states don't like. And I think we're magically going to move back to the Tenth Amendment a little bit uh, on some states' rights. And then I, I, my hope, my, my optimistic worldview is that that's going to set some precedent for the future when people finally realize that we don't need to hang on every single word that the Supreme Court says. And so my hope is once we see a lot of people on the left protesting the rulings from the Supreme Court coming up, that Mm -hmm. hopefully people will use that as precedent to protest any of the rulings from the Supreme Court and that's the only that's the only positive I can find out of the whole situation is that maybe this will actually reduce some of the Supreme Court's power in the long run. That's well, I you know I'll I'll Nate I'll refer back to something you said in the very beginning of today, which is you know you're you're wanting to do this this series kind of you know wanting to head off civil war and you're looking at the sort of the division in politics and and I would say I obviously you know violence is not the answer I'm a, I'm unabashedly anti-war and anti-violence um but with that said our our ideological self uh, segregation is coming on quite nicely I I love mm-hmm. it I I want the nation to be as ideologically self-segregated as possible you know that word segregation has such a negative connotation it really shouldn't now you know state sanctioned segregation obviously is is unethical and immoral um but individual self segregation is something that we should applaud i have no problem i mean this is ultimately the inherent nature of the state right is that having different sections of the country even different cities in the same states being ideologically much different there's nothing wrong with that the reason it becomes a problem is because then those different camps will vie for who gets to drive the car. We want to park the car. <laughs> I couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. I think one of the big things we could uh, realize again, if we were going to use, say, the founding fathers in the Constitution, which I know you said you're not you're not a my founding fathers kind of person. I'm more of a I'm more of a my Declaration of Independence has some really good words in it. I really like that a lot. Um, but the idea that we're 50 separate countries and that we shouldn't all that Texas shouldn't be telling uh, California what mm-hmm. to do and that California shouldn't be telling Tennessee what to do, I think is one of the best things we we could actually move towards to fix some of this divide because I should not be oh crap hold on market closed. I should not be worried about what's going on, uh, what law they are passing in in Oregon, unless they pass a law saying it's okay to kill people randomly in the streets. In that case, I would have something to say about that. But if they can't do anything to me, um, and and they're not just blatantly just killing people all the time, then hey, be your own country over there, man. Don't tell me what to do. I won't tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Then we don't have to just worry about what's on Fox News or CNN all day and what's going on everywhere, because I'm worried about uh, my state and and that just a step, just a step in the right direction. I'm not saying that's a fix because it existed and we still got here. So, it's, but I, I would like to see it go back towards that. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a member of the Tenth Amendment Center. I support TAC and Michael Bolden and Mahari and the guys over there. And um, 
while the anarchist in me would say that the constitution itself was a poison pill and you know this is it is inevitable where we've wound up and i would also say that conservatives and progressives both have played an equal part in running to the federal level in order to right their states uh, wrongs and that that ultimately just set the precedent for federal supremacy um, with that said, I mean, yeah, if if I had the choice, if I had the choice of, well, Alan, we're not going to let you abolish the state, but we're going to allow you to push a button and that's going to go to a truly federalist system where there's 50 sovereign states who um, with the I mean, what are what are the handful of things with the exception of counterfeiting uh, sedition and piracy? They they have complete autonomy within their own state. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I would choose that um, over what we have now um, in the problem is, is that it's not it's not us coming. It's not us meeting in the middle and saying, would that be better? I, I have no problem as an anarchist admitting that that would be better. The problem is, is that a lot of our neighbors, even some of the ones that consider themselves to be constitutionalist or conservatives or, or, or originalist or whatever, a lot of those same people can't come to terms with the fact that, well, if I live in Tennessee, but Arkansas is doing something I find repugnant. I'm going to keep my mouth shut because, or if I'm in Arkansas and Arkansas is doing something repugnant, that doesn't mean you go to Washington DC to declare a war on Arkansas. What that means is, is you pack your bags and you get the hell out. And that's, that's a tough pill for some people to swallow. And some people would say that that feels defeatist. That feels like you're running away. But again, if you want a federal system where you're going to have sovereign states and they're going to have autonomy from a federal Leviathan, that's that's part of it. Part of it's going to be, yes, you can hopefully have more effect at the local level and get policies you want. However, if you find yourself, uh, my friend Suzanne Sherman, uh, who lives in uh, Utah, um, and she does the Wasatch Report. She moved to Utah. She wanted to get out of California. She's originally from San Francisco. The problem is, is that she moved to Utah and the county that she lives in that's adjacent to Salt Lake um, in in just 10 years that she's been there has now gone hard left. They're a very progressive county in the state of Utah. And so now she's kicking herself because that's where she moved to escape San Francisco, but San Francisco followed her <laughs> to Utah. <laughs> but the moral of the story is, is while that sucks and I feel bad for Suzanne, I would still rather a system where she could potentially then move to the Dakotas and be better off than a system where Washington, D.C. comes in and tells Utah to get their stuff together, because eventually someone like Joe Biden or Harris or Bernie or whoever gets elected. And then D.C. goes back to Utah and says, oh, you're fine. Keep going. Right. Exactly. So uh, let's go a little deeper here. And, um, you know, you mentioned the story about starting um, the the printing company, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and how you kind of learned, you know, like really learned how much taxation is theft. What are some other, you know, life lessons that you've learned, uh, maybe some successes or failures or, you know, like who Alan Mosley is uh, through some life experience? You, you have any unique stories? Well, I, I'll, I'll give a very I'll give a very recent one um, that might be a little bit of a cop out. But just, you know, we had our episode 100 in March and that was kind of right in that little gray area of everyone was starting to talk a lot about the pandemic. But a lot of the hardcore lockdowns and stuff hadn't happened yet. And we had our event. It was great, whatever. Um, so our, our day job. So we so we own a studio and an event hall and we I, I manage that property and, um, during the, the days and weekends when I'm not being a failed podcaster and 
that is something that's in, and my, my partner, uh, Blake, who owns the studio, he's, he's, he does wedding videography and, and editing and, and DJing and all that kind of good stuff. Well, it's very connected to public, public and private events. It's very connected to the entertainment industry. Obviously when the lockdowns happened that, I mean, that was just crushing. It was, I mean, we, we've easily lost 80, 85% of our income this year. And, and I'm, and I'm not trying to do a, Oh, woe is me. Go to my GoFundMe. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is that I've always known that government is, is onerous and, and unethical and, and all that stuff. But this, this year, I think, and I think this for a lot of people has been the first time in a lot of people's lives that that really came home. Did right? you, like, did you ever think you'd actually see that? Like we talked about it forever, mm-hmm. but did you actually think that you would see a day where the government physically stopped you from being able to conduct business? Well, you know, it's like, I was, I was going to make the, there's the, the foreign policy analogy is that, you know, we're, we're very anti-war, but the, the, the warfare state, you know, trudges ever onward and, and we hate it. And we wonder how, how is it that we can't put an end to the military, military industrial complex and the warfare state. And the easy answer is, is that Americans don't feel it. They don't feel it in their wallets and they don't see it outside their windows. Look, mm-hmm. if their neighbor's house was getting blown up and carpet bombed, if they didn't know if their kids were going to be able to get to school and back home alive, if they didn't know where their next meal was coming from, or if they had to write a check to pay for the next ICBM, I bet the warfare state would be tuned back quite a bit, but they don't see it. They don't feel it. They don't hear it. And so it's so hard to get people to rally against something that's not present in their lives. But man, this pandemic stuff and all the people out of work. And I mean, so right here in Columbia, we actually, we, I mean, we had, so this, the, the late spring through summer is the busiest time of year for us. That's when people are out and having concerts and having weddings and parties and, and, and our facility is booked out for graduations and all that kind of stuff. Um, we lost all that. And we had parties that were booked. And, and even we had some parties that the people weren't that scared. They were saying, look, I hear everything they're saying on the news, but we've already paid for the, the event and we don't want to have to get a refund on our money. Can we just can we just do it? Can we just go ahead and have the party? Um, if it were up to me, I would have. I, I would have said, look, you're you're a private individual and, and I want to make money. So if you are taking your own safety into your own hands, come on, come out and have your event. We had police driving up and down Bear Creek Pike here in Columbia that were going door to door and telling people, we better see your doors locked and your lights off, because if we catch you open, we're going to write you a ticket. By, which, by the way, you know, how about back in the blue that those guys, that's what that was the most important thing they had to do that day. It wasn't to go stop any murderers or thieves. It was to knock on small businesses doors and tell them you better shut down right now. or I'm going to write you. A, you're going to get a misdemeanor. That was when that happened and we had to cancel all of our events for basically four or five, six months, lost 80 percent plus of our income this year and actually had police knocking on the door saying, you need to lock up. You're out of business right now. Move along, citizen. That was the first time in my life that I could say it came home. I've always known what the state was, but today it actually showed up at my personal door. And man, I. I if if you're if you're still a bootlicking statist after they showed up at your door and said you get to starve today you can't go to work man I just don't know what to tell you <laughs> I, I mean I don't know how much more real it can get you know we that's for your own good obviously yeah yeah <laughs> for the betterment of society you know we actually in the past allegedly we we have wars with countries to fight communism and things like that who mm-hmm. do you think's going to uh, invade America to stop the spread of communism. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, I mean, nobody, you know, what's funny is, is that I've seen some people, particularly on the, you know, some of the anti-Trumper types, not that I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not a Trumper, but uh, some of these anti-Trumper types will say, well, if Trump figures out a way to steal another election, then the UN should send in troops to, to, (laughs) to, to fix, to fix the government. And of course the joke about that is that, but another word for UN troops is American military. We are like, let's say we are the UN. We're paying for everybody else's self-defense. We are the UN. It's a proxy military for us. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) when you say UN peacekeeping troops, what you really mean is American military. So I I think they're barking up the wrong tree with that one. (laughs) I I was just thinking about that today. Like, man, when is someone going to, because I saw this hilarious article from, from the onion that talking about how Syria and someone were uh, thinking about, uh, invading Chicago because of the mass violence that was going on there. I'm like, mm-hmm. man, just think about that for for a minute. Like, would we be okay with someone rolling into our borders to stop the spread of the ideology that's going on, or someone rolling into Chicago or New York right now, or Portland, mm-hmm. some other country? Uh, they well, they just hit a couple targets. You know, they just droned a couple targets in Portland. Don't worry about it. No innocent mm-hmm. people that uh, we want to report were killed. So don't don't worry about it. Like, man, when would when would anyone in the U.S. ever be okay with that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's the old Ron Paul speeches where, you know, imagining if if China had a base in Texas or, you know, or not even say in the country. It, uh, the average American would just be, you know, shocked and outraged if China bought some land from Mexico and put a base right on the Rio Grande. If they did that, every, I mean, they, they would just be nonstop outraged. And you would think World War Three was literally at our door. But then you, you then you look at the little dots on the map of all the American military establishments all around the world and how close they are to other other competing nations, uh, you know, soft targets. And you're like, wow, we, you know, we, we do not, of course I say we, there is no we, but you know what I'm saying for the context Mm -hmm. of this conversation, there's, you know, we don't practice what we preach when it comes to foreign policy, but, but, but still it, it all just circles back to this, this whole thing of while I would like to think that experiences like this year with the lockdowns or, or, or taxes or small business or whatever, while I would like to think that that wakes a lot of people up more to some of our line of thinking, what, what, I, what I fear is, is that instead of them coming away with the attitude of, well, I got to figure out a way to opt out of the system, instead that, that makes them come away with the idea of, I got to figure out a way to control this system. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's for one that a that doesn't really make you any better than the rest and and b the system is not made for you to be control it the system is not designed for you plebs to come along and get the keys to the car the system is not designed to be reformed if there's if there's one word that you automatically know a politician is full of crap it's the word reform any politician that's preaching reform, you automatically know they're blowing smoke because they, of all people, know full well the system was not designed to be reformed. I'm, you know, and I wanted to go back to that, to that, you know, heart wrenching story, in my opinion, and and I kind of agree with you there because once that happened, and you know, forty forty five million people lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it. You know, most of their decisions were driven by fear. It wasn't okay, how do I opt out of the system and how do I make sure this doesn't happen again so that, that I'm not, um, you know, beholden to um, the, the boots coming down to shut me down and, I, and I'm able to operate and feed my family. Um, it was more so like, how much stimulus money are we going to get so we can make it? Are you going to defer my rent payments and my mortgage payments? Are you going to, you know, 
fix this for me. It was, it's actually more of a, it created more dependence. I, unfortunately, I think. Yes. So that's a, a very difficult conversation to have, even amongst kind of our ideological circles uh, related to the pandemic is the, the arguments for, for stimulus and, and that sort of thing. Now, look, you know, I, I study Austrian economics. I'm anti-state. I'm an anarchist. Obviously, I'm against the ridiculous federal spending. Obviously, I'm against stimulus in so much that I understand that they're either just going to de- devalue the currency, inflate, print money to pay the bills, or they're going to tax it. They're going to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Obviously, I'm against those things ideologically. With that said, I, I can't help but play devil's advocate here just a little bit. And I'll use myself as an example. If if I feel that I was wronged, I you know, if 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 this was an anarchist state and some local entity sent sent officers to my door and said, you have to close, there's a pandemic on. If we catch you open, we're going to kill you. Um, then I would say they were in the wrong and I would want to sue them. Right. I'm going to go to court. That's what we don't believe in violence. So we would want to have some type of arbiter. I would sue them. We'd go to court. I would say I would have made X amount of money this year, but I was forced to close because of their policies that, that I believe are unethical, immoral slash illegal. Um, And if I was, if I won, then they would owe me damages. Now, look, we don't live in that world, right? Like, I mean, you and I could go sue the government right now. That'd be a quick trip to, I, I lost a lawsuit and paying lawyers for nothing because it, surprise, the government's not, you're not going to go to a government court where the government's going to rule against the government. It's just, it just doesn't it very rarely slash ever happens. Yeah. So with that said, the one argument that I will make in favor of, of stimulus or, or, you know, unemployment, the PPP loans, that sort of thing is that look, they robbed me guys. They robbed me of like 80% of my income this year. So if I can turn around then and go to the unemployment office or to to the federal office or whatever and either get a 0% interest loan that gets forgiven or, or an SBA loan, um, or if I can get that that you know, the little uh, PPP thing where it's the 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 bonus, the bonus unemployment based on um based on if your business was affected by COVID, you're damn right I'm gonna take it because they stole my money. Mm-hmm. And and as and as our as our as someone that I know we all love, Ron Paul would always say, "Look, the money's spent. Once they once they pass those spent stimulus bills, and once it goes to the House and Senate, and Trump signs it, that money's already out the door. If you don't go and claim your share, they'll just give it to someone else. There there was all those people that always tried to play I gotcha with Ron when he would try to to earmark some money out of spending bills for his for his district. And they would say, ha, look at that. Ron Paul's a hypocrite because he wants to be on the government dole just like everyone else. And he would say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. At this point in the legislative process, the money is spent. If I don't go to try to get as much of it as I can for my for the taxpayers in my district, then I'm just letting their money go to someone else and they don't get a penny of their money back. The Iron Rain Institute made a great argument on this, too, you know, that they they took money from the from the loans as well. Uh, and that the same argument, I think Ayn Rand herself made arguments because she was accepting social security and, and yes. things like that. And mm-hmm. it is that same argument the the money's spent, it's going to go to someone. There's no reason to put yourself at a disadvantage versus people who are actually going to take the money. Um, you, you should want the money. If, if there's going to be stimulus mm-hmm. money, and it's going to go to an organization. Hell, I, I'm fine with it going to the Ayn Rand Institute. Cause that's, that's going to be a really, that's going to be some, some better money spent there. But I think we're in a very unique situation that uh, a lot of people on the libertarian side uh, want to 
<clears throat> kind of lump in with every other conversation. And I do think this is a little bit unique. This is like a a countrywide eminent domain for a specific amount of time that's happened. And they've taken your property for this amount of time. And I do, <clears throat> I do, I, I agree with you. I think that there is compensation uh, owed more so than normal, because there's really always compensation owed to people who have, who have had tax money taken from them before. But I do mm-hmm. think there's compensation owed when they force you to to stay home and not work and not be able to make an income. Obviously, we're just in a very... It, I don't think that there's just a brilliant, perfect answer for it, because there isn't any money. It doesn't exist. It's it's not yeah, there. It's, it's not like money you paid in taxes, guys. The money you paid in taxes is gone. It's gone. It's not there. This it's is gone not money. 20 years ago. Yeah, it's, it yeah. was gone 20 years ago. Exactly. So the, yeah. that argument like, well, I paid this money in, I should get it back. No, the money you paid in is gone. It's completely gone. And yeah. and you need to, you know, everyone's got to wrap their heads around that. And so to me, there's just not a perfect, amazing libertarian answer to be had right now. Because mm-hmm. this is a situation where the governments put people in an even worse prison than normal and and is put them in prison and then telling them they have to feed themselves while they're in there too. And mm-hmm. and I don't think it's I don't think it's as easy as a lot of people want to make it. Like a, you well, can't can't do a stimulus. What are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? The, we took advantage of the options for us as well. Yeah. I mean, we got a we got a, a disaster uh, relief check. Then we got a disaster relief loan and, and, and it's because, well, obviously, I mean, our contracts got cut in half and I'm in healthcare. Like our main business is in healthcare and yeah. our contracts got cut in half. Yeah. It's like, what? So, what? so of course, like I'm going to take advantage of that too, as well for, for our business to keep things running and afloat. But it's just um, completely baffling. What we talked about the whole time was like, look, I'm completely against stimulus to begin with, mm-hmm. but if it's going to exist, well, of course, I'm going to try to get some of my money back, essentially, even though I know it's already gone. I'm just saying, as, as Ron Paul would say in Ayn Rand and, and everyone, it's already spent. So if, it, if it's already going to be there, then I'm going to at least keep my business going. So maybe in the future, we can, we can at least provide some type of value to other folks in the market. But it's just, uh, but, yeah. and I think, though, for the majority of people who don't think like we do, um, it was government's responsibility. I think it... I think it created more of a dependence rather than a there's something wrong with the system. It was how can the system save us? Well, for socialists, it was yeah. proof that we needed more socialism, right. you know, and for people mm-hmm. that are, I guess, uh, I don't know, at least on our side of the spectrum, it's proof that this that we've been right all along. And if you're on the left, it's proof that they were right all along. And well, it's, conservatives, they're praising <laughs> Trump for lowering insulin prices through government action through his pen. <laughs> Right. And instead of yeah. instead of going to a free market solution and they're praising them for more stimulus talks and all that. So it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. As you mentioned earlier in the show, Alan, it's the majority of, of regular folk, I would say. And I hate I, I'm not trying to ostracize anyone out there, but I, I just don't think people think about these things. And, and really, they lack a set of principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the main thing. So, well, um, I, I know we kind of kept you a little bit long here. Um, but we definitely really appreciate the conversation. Any final words about uh, who you are or, or where you came from? Tell us or about your show, f- all that stuff. And we'll, we'll wrap show. it up. Sure. So uh, it's it's too late with Alan Mosley, which our, our next year's live event is already scheduled for March 20th. So we'll wait to see what national crisis uh, threatens that one. 
Uh, but we had our event this year, so we're going to have ours next year. So it's, it's March 20th. It's Too Late with Alan Mosley. Uh, new episodes premiere every Wednesday night at 9 Eastern, 8 Central. Uh, you can find it on Facebook.com slash Alan Mosley TV. YouTube's Alan Mosley TV. Twitter's Alan Mosley TV. Website is Alan Mosley TV. It's really easy. <laughs> if you want to support the program, you can go to the website or you can go to Patreon.com slash Alan Mosley. So it's very easy. You just go to Alan Mosley or Alan Mosley TV. You're going to find my crap where I'm normally ranting about things on which we have no control. Uh, the only thing I, would, I was going to wrap up with to what you were saying, Charlie, is, is um, I'm, I'm not sure that I would necessarily say I'm a collapsitarian, but I do tend to think that if we see any change in the state in our lifetime, it's much more likely that it collapses under its own weight than because of you or I being politically active. And so if you do think that it's much more likely to collapse under its own weight, as opposed to political activism, then dudes go out and get your cheese. Like Mm -hmm. you got to do it. That's I tell people all the time. The most important, if you're saying, well, Alan, if I'm not going to be involved politically, what should I do? The answer is, is you got to do the best for you and take care of your loved ones and let the chips fall where they may, because you can't control the world. 